0: Welcome to Language Made Difficult, a draconian part of the Specgram podcast. I'm Trey Jones, and this Linguistics Roundtable Telesymposium is coming to you from our virtual conference center hosted via satellite uplink from an undisclosed bunker location in Minot, North Dakota. Joining me today are the rest of the Ling nerds Bill Spruill. Hey. Keith Slater. Great to be with you. And Sherry Wells Jensen. Hi there. Let's start off with some lies, damn lies, and linguistics. As usual, I've got three language related items. Two are true and one is false, and you guys have to figure out which is which. So our topic this time is weird dialects, and here are three items. Sounds good. Number one, the royal accent of a Khan spoken in Africa features hurried speech, low volume, intentional stuttering, and a slight nasal resonance. Item number two, the Fenungua dialect of Fenungan, spoken in Papua New Guinea, has a distinct dialect to spoken on or in the water, which is used on boats, when swimming, and when taking a bath. Item number three, Daman, the extinct ceremonial register of Lardol, spoken in Australia, features lingual aggressive clicks, pulmonic aggressive fricatives, and a lingual aggressive bilabial spurt. <laughs> All right, who wants to go first? Not me.
1: <laughs> I'm hoping if I sit here in my backyard long enough, some animal will come by and make a bilingual aggressive bilabial spurt just so I can hear it. That's what I really want right now. <laughs>
2: Yeah, Trey, I think you need to demonstrate all these just to to make it clear that they're theoretically possible, okay?
0: Just go ahead. Okay, so I'm so glad I did that, but we had to cut it out. (laughs) What a shame. (laughs) All right, so now you've heard them all. Sherry, you can go first.
1: Oh, goody. Okay, Gary, you did such a good job with that aggressive bilabial spurt thing. I'm guessing that's true, besides it's lard so go ahead, it's got to be true, whatever it is. Gee, I thought I wrote these down while you were talking, and I was so enchanted by the spurt that I just really... <laughs> <laughs> So the first one, the dialect of Khan. I'm prepared to believe that because I think that would be good for movies, because when they're scuttling around doing intrigue in the palace or whatever, you know, they're <laughs> you've got <have> to have a little, like, that'd be good, right, if they had that. So my worldview is better, if that's true. So the one I'm prepared to not believe, I think that maybe the whole dialect of while you're on the water, I can sort of buy that if there's some kind of spiritual dimension with I don't know, water spirits or something like that, but I don't buy the bath thing. I think that, sir, is where you go too far. I'm not buying the bath thing, so it's number two.
2: (laughs) Hey, I want to disagree, because I noticed a name I recognized in one of these, namely this Phanongan. This is clearly some displaced Finnegan's from Ireland, and... I'm guessing that it took them 14 months of drifting on the sea to arrive in Papua New Guinea. And by the time they got there, sure, they had a special dialect for speaking on the water. So (laughs) I think that one's got to be true. I like the bilabial spurt, too. I appreciated your demonstration of it there, Trey. Sorry, the recorder failed. But uh, any ceremonial register worth its salt ought to have a sound like that. So that one's got to be true, too. I'm thinking that it's the royal accent of a con, which... Sounded to me like a veiled insult aimed at me or possibly Bill. I'm thinking that's the false one.
0: How is <laughs> was an insult to you and Bill. <laughs> you know, hurried speech, low
2: volume, intentional stuttering. That was the part I was most concerned <laughs> about. And the slight nasal resonance. <laughs>
3: Bill? I'm having trouble with this one because all three sound like believable statements about what language speakers might do, particularly if, if, number one, if instead of thinking of it as intentional stuttering, it's kind of like assonance kind of thing where you deliberately draw it out as kind of a poetic device. So one sounds believable Two sounds kind of believable, although this distinction between swimming and taking a bath in a lot of regions, why would you consider those separate categories necessarily? Number three, while those noises would explain why it's an extinct ceremonial register, <laughs> uh, they sound pretty darn odd to me. Ceremonial. Know? They sound pretty ceremonial. Yeah, but it but just, when yeah. he
1: did them all at once, it was so cool. He just did them over and over. It was just astounding. I mean, it had to be real.
3: Yeah, but <laughs> I don't know how much of that's stray being different from the in-situ used by native speakers or not. <laughs> I'm going to say it's number two. Okay. <laughs> no
0: one picked number three. So let's start with that one. That the bilabial spurt is in fact true. I knew you couldn't make that up. It just sounded
1: too natural.
0: <laughs> and then the first one, the royal accent of a con with the uh, stuttering and slight nasal resonance is also true.
1: No! <laughs> <Yes>! <laughs>
0: While the language of Papua New Guinea is real, I, I made up the facts about it and there is no dialect for being spoken on the water. Yes! Curses. Yes, guess I wasn't quite tricky enough <laughs> since I only fooled Keith. And let's see, you have the scores. <laughs> Bill is in first place with five out of seven. In second place, Sherry's got three out of five. And I'm four out of seven. And Keith, you got one out of seven.
2: Ooh, that's bad. I thought we restarted last time.
0: <laughs> no, we restarted apparently seven times ago. I
2: thought I was zero out of one.
0: <laughs> 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 well, technically, that's not as good a score. <laughs> right. But it's easier to make up, <laughs> I could have up from there.
2: <laughs> well, next time, next time, I'll start my comeback when I've lulled you into a false sense of security. <laughs> next, <laughs> uh,
0: I think next we have a commercial, and then we'll be back to discuss some linguistic news. Language made difficult is brought to you by the speculative Grammarian and essential guide to linguistics. No, really, it really does exist. The book is large enough to kill most insects and many rodents and contains more than 150 of the best articles, poems, cartoons, and other things from 25 years of SPECGRAM. You can find out more on the web at SPECGRAM.com book.
3: Welcome back to the SPECGRAM podcast. We have a piece of linguistic news to discuss today that has to do with people apparently turning punctuation marks into pronunciation and using them as conjunctions. The Lingua Franca column in the Chronicle has a piece discussing people actually using the word slash, like saying, I think I want a sandwich slash piece of pizza, meaning potentially sandwich and piece of pizza, etc. And John McWhorter has a TED Talk on it, or so I've been told. The problem with TED Talks is that you have to wait for people to say the words instead of reading them at normal speed. So I haven't completely...
2: Uh, (laughs) Bill, do you ever carry on conversations outside of these recordings, or (laughs) is it all just literate for you?
3: Well, you can read about seven times faster than you can watch TED Talks, (laughs) and that's only partly because they're called TED Talks, (laughs) so... I thought it would be important to bring in a piece of context for this that our listeners might not know, which is that calling that thing a slash and actually saying a slash was part of one of the first internet viral grassroots campaigns. One of the things that's little known is that before the early 80s, there were a number of different marks used for that, including the virgule and the solidus, and By the time that sort of the modern personal computer revolution occurred, most of the people using computer systems were using the slash. So if you were on the precursors to Unix, for example, it was a slash. But there were two major exceptions. Microsoft used the virgule because they thought it was higher class. (laughs) And so their files had virgules in them. The Commodore Amiga used the Solidus. The problems it had, I know a bunch of the listeners probably have never heard of the Commodore Amiga, but Solidus was one of its issues. Now, Microsoft heavily pushed for using the Virgule. They were putting Virgules in things. And it was all right until people started sharing files over connections. Because if you're on a Unix machine, for example, you get in something with these virgules and it doesn't know what to do with them. And it kind of still doesn't. They pushed Microsoft to adopt the same standard as other people. It's like, use ASCII characters. And Microsoft reached a kind of compromise position. They used the codes for the ASCII character for the slash but they set up an internal standard where the virgule actually used the same byte as the slash, but had an extra byte that could be stored at the beginning of the file. And if you try to bring in like a text file from Windows Notepad into Unix, for example, that special byte is still at the beginning. It's to turn all the slashes into virgules. <laughs> and it causes problems sometimes because it doesn't map onto the systems. But that was the closest that Microsoft could get to having its virgule and have other people bring the files in. But the Unix community, in reaction to this, started this kind of viral campaign of saying Slash every time they could, all right? (laughs) So they started calling it Slash when they were talking at computer conferences. They heavily funded some band with a guitarist named that. They did a of things to move this into sort of the limelight so everyone would start calling it the Slash instead of the Virgual. Solidus wasn't really a problem, and it kind of self-destructed by the time this got anywhere. But that tendency to say Slash like that was sort of part of a grassroots campaign. It wasn't totally artificial because it wasn't designed by a linguist. But it still got its popularity partly from that. Now, it's... Its use as a conjunction is probably, I think, a happy marriage between the commonality of the term, because it it had already been effectively marketed this way, and its ability to let you indicate that you're making an assertion without really having to settle on anything. (laughs) And and implies you're going to do both of these things or implies you're going to do one of those. I know logicians disagree with that, but that's only because they're speaking Logian instead of English. (laughs) But slash doesn't really make you settle on anything. And so it's almost perfect. It allows the illusion of assertion without any actual repercussions of it. Slash side effect.
2: It's a form of hedge. That's You're saying it's not as strong as an and. Right. And it's not as binary as an or. Right.
1: With an implied et cetera after it somehow with an extra bite.
0: <laughs> so I have to admit that during the computer lecture, I fell asleep a little bit. <laughs> how's your Amiga working for you there, Trey? <laughs> awesome. <laughs> <laughs> but you didn't really mention the, the weirdest use of it, which is sort of getting away from the alternatives and more towards the the use of a topic shift. That's the weirdest thing.
3: Right. Well, so
2: we have these interesting examples
0: of
3: uh, yeah. yeah, people they using inter- it as a topic they, shift. They were interesting, but they were wrong. <laughs> See, now I agree
0: with you, but uh, I know we're not supposed to be prescriptivists about this, but it just seems horrible and wrong. You're right. It offends my sensibilities, both as a speaker of English and as a linguist.
3: Oh, You missed a very important point, though, that lets us not have to feel guilty about this. We are not allowed to be judgmental about language. That's punctuation. <laughs> Until it's officially declared otherwise, which will probably be in about 10 minutes, it <laughs> is punctuation. And there is an extremely long and robust tradition of. Being an unapologetically prescriptive about punctuation. Hmm. Oh, but they spell it out even in texting,
0: which I thought was weird. They don't use the slash character; they actually spell out the word slash.
3: So, but it's standing for the slash character, right? Well, no. I mean, I think it's to distinguish. No, no, no. You're 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 spoiling <laughs> it. We we have to, <laughs> the logic that makes this punctuation. Plus, the logic that allows linguists to endure punctuation is what lets us talk about this without feeling guilty about it.
0: Mm. I'm worried it's going to catch on. And then when I'm, like, in my 70s, I'll be railing against it and hitting my grandchildren with a cane every time they say it and, <laughs> and lamenting the imminent downfall of the English language, which, of course, has been happening for the last 500 years. <sighs>
1: I appreciate Virgil and Solidus were, like, characters in Merchant of Venice, weren't they? <laughs> 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 My daughter says this slash thing. It's in her dialect. She uses it all the time, and it frightens me. But it's happening. It's it's over. We have to surrender to it. I think.
0: Does she use it with just the sort of and or, or some sort of squishy relative of that, or does she use the topic shift meaning?
1: I can't think. Of it. Say something in her voice that was a topic shift. <laughs> <laughs> something with a nasal spurt thing. <laughs> <sighs>
0: Alas, I cannot. The other question is, what's
2: going to be the next? I mean, slash, let's face it, that's a very marginal punctuation symbol, if it was ever punctuation. What else is available? So is comma available for this kind of uh, new life?
0: No, no, comma's too common. What about period? Periods too too common too.
2: People say period, of course, but with no function like this, right? So right, right. That's right. the last straw. Period. I'm not going. Period.
0: Right, and people say full stop. Not Ooh. not real people. <laughs> just just British people. <laughs> 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 just, just slice away huge huge swaths of our potential listening audience. We don't care about you college students. We don't care about you British people. I mean, four <laughs> people left.
3: Ah. Wait a minute. What are the tiny double angle brackets used for quotations in French and Russian? Guillaume's? Yeah, something like that. Well, there you go.
1: But that's another character from somewhere in Shakespeare.
2: <laughs> Wasn't he the conqueror? Guillaume the conqueror? <laughs> the, the Norman guy, right?
3: Yeah, I think so. I am probably completely mispronouncing the name of it. <laughs> but in my head, it's like Gwilomet, so... Those are called chevrons, aren't they?
0: Mm, I don't think so. <laughs>
2: Anyway, you don't think any other punctuation is available to move into this conjunction and then topic shift, kind of. Or what else? You know, whatever else. Take on some discourse function.
0: I was trying to think about some less frequently used punctuation. So nobody uses m dashes properly anymore. Uh, Most people don't even know they exist. So that's available. People who do can't type them, so they just use double dashes. Though there are lots of m dashes used correctly in the soon-to-be-released Specgram book. And when will that book be released, Trey? Possibly around the same time as this
2: podcast. Actually, this podcast may come out before the book. (laughs) I don't know. Check out the Speckram
0: website for more information.
1: Trademark!
0: (laughs) (laughs) So
3: there are lots of useless characters that
0: I've only ever seen used in, like, math textbooks.
3: But it used to be things that people see a good bit in things like email, because that's how the slash came in. Sure. Angle brackets, maybe? Because people are putting those in to give subtext, Right. Yeah, some. They use them like HTML tags. Right. So you're talking along and then you get ankle bracket, so-and-so ankle bracket. Oh, you know what? There you go.
0: Have you guys seen less than slash three? No. No. Basically looks like a broken heart. So the three on its side, the three makes the, oh.
3: the, the
2: oh, yeah, curve yeah, of yeah, the heart. Yeah, yeah. yeah okay, and less the,
0: than slash three. Yeah, okay. Yeah, and so that's used as a broken heart. I don't know how you'd pronounce that in any useful way. It would have to grammaticalize to
2: like something like, what is it, less than slash three, so it would have to grammaticalize to something like, less
3: less three. That's too long. That's too long. Well, three. It's... It's fine to do it. Le three. <laughs> Le three. Well, well, no, you need something that is less than the word three. Just and two. Beyond the break for the slash and then the three. So it'd be tra three. How about just two? That's right. less than three. There we go.
0: <laughs> because it's so hard to pronounce, no one's really tried. <laughs> That's a problem. Well, no, but I think it has sort of lexified in written language texting. I mean, you see it on t shirts and you know, email and Twitter and blogs and stuff like that. So that's an interesting one that's out there, at least.
3: Not if you set your filters right.
2: (laughs) (laughs) I mean, the plain old semicolon is pretty much without any actual function in normal life now. So that's probably available
0: for reinterpretation. There's a term for that that applies to certain words, like nonplussed or begging the question. The term is uh, skunked because so many people use it the wrong way. Uh, If you use it the right way you're likely to be interpreted as having used it wrongly and so you just you can't beg the question the original way oh yeah because too many people will misinterpret it and then same thing with nonplussed so i think the semicolon may also have been skunked because so few people can use it correctly that it's one of those things where people just like don't ever use it because you'll never do it right and then if you do it right they'll probably just think you did it wrong because they don't know
1: it's that between you and i thing right yeah. So you can't say between yeah. you and me, and you can't say between you and nine, so you have to say, I'm between us guys, and then you feel better about it.
2: <laughs> yeah. I think well, the semicolon is, it's only a register marker now, right? It doesn't have any actual function. <laughs> People just throw it in because it looks formal.
3: If you're a particularly horrifying type of bureaucratic writer, what you say is, well, just between you and myself. Oh! Yeah. Oh! Oh! <laughs> <laughs> <sighs> Keith was laughing which means he hasn't
0: experienced that.
2: Uh. <laughs> oh. Everyone else cringed. Yep. I don't know any of these bureaucrats that you other people rub shoulders with or and exchange emails think,
3: with. To make it clear I am not criticizing that as a natural linguistic usage. I'm criticizing it as the product of bureaucrats. That's two different things. <laughs> <laughs>
2: So where uh, is the slash going? If it's become a topic shift marker, is that the end, or does it have another step in its uh, natural development?
3: Phonological reduction. So <laughs> <Or> just become <something laughs> just a Yeah, sh- just uh, Yeah. Slah. No. No, it's got to keep the sh. <laughs> I think sh. Yeah,
0: the sh is definitely the distinguishing bit. Though I was thinking it could actually be. <laughs> you can imagine the folk etymology in the future, right? Because if if you sort of conflate that our new reduced slash, which is just sh. To the quiet. You know, right. The shush, exactly. shushing. If I don't finish them. No, yeah. So, so I'm going to say something. Shh. Now I'm going to say something completely different. Right. <laughs> so right. it's like, hush, be quiet. Here comes the good part.
1: Maybe they'll, re- they'll reinvent it as hush later on when they're trying to be super formal.
0: Right. Ah, okay. Once it
2: gets reduced to shh, then it can be re-expanded
0: to something. Exactly. Like hush. Yeah. So what we need to do is we need to trademark and copyright that now. <laughs> and then just... <laughs> everyone who ever uses it in the future owes us a nickel. Nice. And then we can say, if I had a nickel for every time somebody said that <laughs> that hush thing, I'd have all this big pile of nickels I do in fact have. So,
2: <laughs> shh. It's time to move on. <laughs>
0: I, I think perhaps we do need a topic shift. <laughs> but first, another word from our sponsors.
1: Language Made Difficult is underwritten by an overly generous grant from the Office of the Controller General of Specgram. I'm watching you, word nerds.
0: Language Made
2: Difficult is not brought to you by the American Dialect Society, the British Association for Applied Linguistics, nor the International Clinical Phonetics and Linguistics Association. Okay, and we're back. Well, it's that time again, grad students. Get out those digital etch sketches or whatever it is that's fashionable to take notes on these days. We're going to help you out with more comprehensive exam questions. Ready? Here we go. Okay, so today's first question is from the history of linguistics. Suppose that Chomsky had first studied literature instead of math. How would the discipline of linguistics be different today? Who'd like to start us out with a MA-level answer?
3: I'll take a stab at it. Okay, Bill. What we would have in linguistics today would be A lot of people using impenetrable jargon in a way that made the subject matter uninteresting to the general public. Wait, that's what we have already, Bill. Uh, We'd be studying tables of contents. (laughs) And how do you get to that conclusion? They are the important organizational principle of texts. The rest is just fleshing out the table of contents.
2: There's really no need to look at the text itself when someone's already done the
0: work for you, right? I don't know, though. Is that the surface structure of the organization? I don't know. The deep structure there is maybe that's the index.
3: But that's about words. We already know that anything that has to do with words is not really language.
4: So the point is that you only have to study one table of contents, in the whole discipline. If you get one of the really good ones with the Roman numerals and then the numbers and the letters or however that goes, then you're done. And you've got that one document and then you can just, you never have to become by what? By table of contents. I can't make this adjective.
0: <laughs> <laughs> just add Ian on the end.
4: Ian, by table of contents, Ian. You can be monocontinental. Oh, I like that. <laughs> And then that would simplify a lot of things, I think, for all of us.
0: See, you sound like a syntactician.
4: Ew. Hey, be nice.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Don't call names. Just like you get the structure of the Roman numerals and what about the content, the meaning of the elements of the table of contents?
4: Weren't you listening to Bill? That's not language.
0: (laughs) Those were words. I
3: was going for meaning now but oh. well, that's also not language, that's semantics. Okay.
2: See, I think you guys are on completely the wrong track, because had Chomsky first studied literature, he would have known that the essence of any text is whatever the primary symbol is. And this is old. Not what they do in literature today, but Chomsky did this in the 50s, right? So back when they actually read the text and tried to find what is the symbol, it would be a phallic symbol or something that really captures the essence of what this text is about. And we'd be doing the same thing with language. So we would reduce any given language to the one image that we think really captures the theme of it. The slash. Like the (laughs) slash, for example.
1: Hmm.
4: No, and I think you guys are all totally missing the whole point here. here's the thing. Chomsky didn't leave math, and I think it's important to go back to your original sources and invent them if necessary, because Chomsky (laughs) didn't leave math. He was cast out of math because his papers were too long, and he was no fun to read, right? And his pictures weren't any good, so they cast him out of math. But if he'd been in literature first, they would have kept him because he could have written his long papers there. He would have just had to go, colorless screen ideas. And then he would have been in everywhere, right? And we could do the postmodern on that. And yeah, he
2: would have been a poet.
4: Yeah. He would have been a poet. He would have been a great poet. And so literature never would have let him go. And we, and wouldn't so have we would have linguistics. Well, we would be chomsky and we would have behaviorism. <laughs> Which, I don't know, maybe by now that would be a good thing. If we'd let it run for 50, 60 more years... Who knows what we could something. have? That's right. We didn't even give it a chance. I mean, Chomsky shot it down before it really had a chance to flower, right?
3: So yep. I think if, that if that's the it, answer. If you let it become a habit, then it's <laughs> much easier. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, I think we better move
2: on. I'm pretty sure we've come up with several plausible answers to that one. Let's take a question from morphology next. Now, this one has to do with case marking systems. Okay, so we get it. We understand the need as European language speakers. We can understand the need to distinguish agents and patients. So nominative, accusative, case marking, that makes sense. But why in the world would any language come up with an ergative, absolutive case marking system? Can anybody think of a single good reason?
0: I actually have a good explanation for this. So, somewhat surprisingly, we can actually find the answer to this question by doing corpus linguistics on a large collection of English texts collected from the internet. Okay, let's hear it. According to recent calculations by B. Akoff Van Envelope of the Make <laughs> It Up Statistical Institute, 94.3% of all references to ergativity occur in conlanging forums, mailing lists, and message boards. Ah. As a result, Van Envelope suggests that all ergative languages are, in fact, creolized conlangs. Uh-huh. Because conlangers love ergativity way more than anyone else in the entire universe. More than Basques? Yes.
2: Okay, so what? what you're suggesting is that Basque is in fact a creolized conlang. Yes. And I can buy that. I think that's
4: right. <laughs> Trey, I don't think you've pushed your argument far enough, honestly. I think you're being awfully conservative with that analysis because you got to ask yourself, well, why did they do this thing? And I think it's clear that this is a conspiracy plot. It's been going on for some time because conlangers don't get the kind of recognition they need. So the evil plot was you put this ergativity thing out there and you wait for it to seep into other languages, just like you said it was going to, right? You even fund some guys to sneak into some place and add a couple things, a couple mysterious markings to some field notes, which they could do because with all the money they raise from like Esperanto dictionaries and stuff, you just hire these guys to sneak into the language labs, and they add these mysterious markings wherever, then legitimate theorists will come up with ergativity to explain those markings. And then some university marketer type gets a hold of it and publishes it, right? New kind of system created. And it's just one big Eskimo vocabulary hoax from there. And that's, that's how the <laughs> thing happened. And I'm going to have to move to Hong Kong now that I've revealed that because I'm pretty sure they're going to be after me. I hope that I can count on Specgram's protection.
0: Uh, sure, if you can make it to a Russian airport. <laughs> awesome,
4: i there. I might uh, be there already, right. I'm not saying.
3: I have an alternate explanation for this. And it is not in any way disinformation to counter what Sherry just said. <laughs> if you think about it, nominative accusative languages are very good at signaling whether something gets affected by the action or not. That's an oversimplification, but prototypical accusatives are affected by the action. Ergative absolutive case marking systems let you signal whose fault it is. <laughs> Without an absolutive, it's just stuff happened. <laughs> yeah, maybe there was an action that was engaged in by somebody. Uh, maybe there was something being done to by something. <laughs> Nobody did it. I think ergative absolutive case marking systems are kind of a historical record of cultural groups that developed complex legal systems.
0: <laughs> and legalese is, in fact, a conline. Really, when you come down to it. Wow. And blame the cast.
3: It has been officially declared not one.
4: You did bring up the point, though, and I think this is really important, that if anyone on the comprehensive exam reading committee happens to speak a language that he or she believes is ergative, you should not use this answer, just for your own protection.
2: (laughs) That's always something you need to take into account. You do not want to offend your committee members. You can offend the least influential one of them, but not the rest. Just for fun. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, well, let's move on to a question from semantics. And this is probably going to be most helpful to those of you who are doing your degree in linguistics, but within an English department, I think. So here's the question. Which are more important in the semantic structure of natural languages, nouns or verbs? Justify your answer by reference to the works of a major literary figure in any language. (laughs) Who'd like to take a stab at this one?
0: I'll go. I think it's a trick question because (laughs) nouns and verbs are both the invention of a Eurocentric patriarchal linguistic cabal of syntacticians and morphologists? And the correct answer is adjectives. And here's the clincher, is you claim that you have some butt-ugly poetry written in a Dothraki Klingon creole by the famous illegitimate offspring of Khal Drogo and Balana Torres that proves your point, and if they don't believe you, you threaten to read the entire 582 iambic heptameter stanzas of the poem. Ooh, ethnopoetics wins the day. <laughs> That's all I got.
3: Just a question about the situation here, Keith. Yes. (laughs) Who's on this committee that will be evaluating our answers? Having semantics and literary figure slash English department, that's kind of a stretch there. (laughs) Okay. Well,
2: you know, who's on your committee is a very personal question that no one can decide for you, Bill.
3: Okay. Well, if there was no one on the committee that had been writing that much about German philosophy lately, (laughs) I would say the most important to the semantic structure of natural languages is verbs because Heidegger. (laughs) And if they pinned me on that, I would have brought a copy of Heidegger And then say, well, of course, as he says on page so-and-so, and and then I just read some Heidegger (laughs) and look look confident and wait for the other person to step up and act like they know what Heidegger was really saying so as to disagree with me. (laughs) Now, that will doom you if there's anyone on the committee who actually has studied Heidegger.
2: Well, Uh, I think that you're on the right track, Bill, but I think that this is in fact a trick question, as Trey suggested, but the answer is not adjectives. The answer is whatever you feel like making it, because I think the real question here is just whether you can name any major literary figure or not. And if you're able to do that, you will satisfy a committee that would ask a question of this nature.
4: I think you're going at this from totally the wrong angle, you guys. What you need are some data, right? So, you need to take an important literary figure. (laughs) I don't know if I'm actually going to be able to read this, but I have a modest example of this for you. So, what you need to do is take a great literary figure and take the same passage and first remove the verbs and see how that goes. And then try it again and remove the nouns and see how that goes. (laughs) So, here it is without the verbs, and I'm pounding all sort of uh, oxen, and that kind of nonsense as verbs. Okay. Mm-hmm. Here's the passage without verbs. I Sam. I Sam. Sam I. That Sam I. That Sam I. I not that Sam I. <laughs> you green eggs and ham. I not them. Sam I. I not green eggs and ham. You them here or there. You them anywhere. I not green eggs and ham. I not them here or there. I not them anywhere. I not green eggs and ham. I not them. Sam I. You them in a house, you them with a mouse. I not them in a house, I not them with a mouse. I not them here or there, I not them anywhere. I not green eggs and ham, I not them, Sam. I you them in a box, you them with a fox, not in a box, not with a fox, not in a house, not with a mouse. I not them here or there, I not them anywhere. See, now I think that went pretty well.
2: (laughs) That's very nice.
4: Yeah, and you totally didn't miss anything, really,
2: did you? (laughs) No. (laughs) No, but Sherry, I do have a bit of a complaint about that answer. That, I think, is not an answer to a comprehensive exam question. That was an MA thesis. (laughs) That was way too much data.
4: And you do have to go out then and get the reactions and see if people can understand, because later when you do the rewrite, you get to passages like, I eat them in a, I not eat them in a, I eat them with a. (laughs) Would you with a? And so you can clearly see which are more important than nouns or the verbs. I mean, it's really, it's just not even a question.
0: I wonder if you could also sidestep the entire question, if you could identify a major literary figure in an agglutinating language. <laughs> <laughs> and then you, you don't have to really answer the question.
2: <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. It would certainly satisfy the committee,
3: I'm sure. <laughs> well, there's oh. one other way to hijack that question in a way that might be useful on a comprehensive, which is, again, since they've asked you to connect this to a major literary figure, the idea is this might be an English department. You treat it as if it were a different kind of trick question. And this works better if you can raise one eyebrow, but not the other. You look at them and say, by the semantic structure of natural languages, did you mean the intersubjective enactment of communal meaning? (laughs) They're put in the position of either saying, you know, yes, you figured it out, that's a problem with this, and you've just scored points, or they start to say, no, they meant semantic structure, and then realize that you don't really do that in English departments,
1: right? (laughs)
3: And that the other English people are looking at you funny, then you just give the first response anyway. So, I mean, it comes out in your benefit no matter what you do.
2: (laughs) Okay, well, it's always useful to have a way to dodge the question. Right. That's an important skill. Okay, well, there's one more subdiscipline to go over today, and that's phonology. You ready? Okay, unfortunately, I could not come up with any meaningful questions about this pathetic subfield. If you can pronounce the word
0: phonology, you pass. Phonology.
2: <laughs> Failed. Anyone else?
0: Ah, uh, that's the underlying phonological form.
1: <laughs> no,
4: you oh, gotta you're right. do it with you that's gotta do it story. with the silent Q. If you don't have the silent Q in it, you're totally wrong. <laughs> <laughs> you need that to get the stress placement right.
2: All right, let's hear it.
4: Oh, <laughs> <laughs> and you probably need some kind of bilabial egressive spurt, spurt too. <laughs>
2: Okay. Well, there you have it, grad students. These are the questions you can expect, and these are the answers you can use. From an authority you can trust, the specgramling nerds. And remember, if you heard it on Language Made Difficult, there's a 97% chance that your professor didn't.
0: So don't fret. Your comprehensive exam is in the bag. That's all the time we have for Language Made Difficult. Join us next time when we discuss the etymological and sociolinguistic relationships between in-laws and outlaws.
1: Oh yeah, okie Yeah, you betcha. Oh yeah, you betcha. <laughs>
3: Welcome back to the Spec Rounds Podcast. Uh, let's restart this without Uner's physics. Is that morphology or typology?
2: Oh, it doesn't matter. <laughs> <laughs> sure, it's typology. It's morph. it's morphological typology. Okay.
3: Aes- Aes- and dead- and
4: <laughs> what the hell was I saying? Was it was it clever? <laughs> if it was, it was clever, p- I'll go back. If it wasn't clever, I'm gonna ditch it. <laughs>
0: I'm going to edit that out. I'm not going (laughs) to...